Oh boy, what's up, yeah. guys? Nothing. I just yo yo. <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> I'm a little punchy. You guys, punchy. You, you guys, you guys missed some gold before we started recording here. It is the wrong attitude to bring to the material. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Patreon only. You can hear what we recorded recorded before this. It was about sex addict Yoda. Yeah. <laughs> That's all you get. A character concept. That's all you get. <laughs> uh, welcome, everybody, to the 11th episode of wow. our humble wow. podcast, Spine Crackers. That's right. I'm Gabe, Lucky the number 11. Lance Bass <clears throat> of the group. Wait, wait, wait. Okay. I'm Matt. Um... You threw that idea at me, so now you can be anybody you want. It doesn't even have to be from Instinct or a boy band. But what I, really? I was, just, I'm just, I was just doing that, baby. All right, I'm Paul. What do you the, mean? Uh, the Lance Armstrong of the group. <laughs> okay, now it has to be someone named Lance. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> who other? Who are other Lances? Oh, uh, Lance. Uh, I was about to say. <laughs> Lance Legstrong? We're gonna yeah. see Lance Legstrong. Spear yeah. Spear, Spear Legstrong. <laughs> Spear Leg Week. I'm Spear Leg Week. No, fuck. I who's the gossip girl that's also a bass? Chuck Bass. No. Like from the show, Gossip Girl? Yeah, yeah. I don't know enough about I don't remember enough characters. Oh I can't uh, I yeah, it's Chuck Bass. Right. That works. You could you could switch the last name. Yeah. yeah. Right. You could be the Chuck Bass. I'm Louis you. Armstrong. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'm I'm Blake Lively. Welcome to Spine Crackers. There you go, dude. More like Wordsworth uh dead. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm doing the name I'm doing the name game thing. Who landed on the moon again? Well, like Blake is a poet. So I was like, you know, like something else, like Coleridge, Coleridge Deathly, you know, something like that. Oh, okay. I see what you're doing. This is the worst episode we've ever recorded. I was, I, the way I do that joke, it would have been more like Bapond Deadly or something. Like, oh, gotcha. Like Like, (laughs) Lake and Pond and Dead Alive. I got you. It has to be way more like opposites and literal. More, yeah. That's how I do it. It's a okay. stupid. It's stupid, and no one thinks it's funny. Nobody likes those tweets, so I think it's funny. No one gets I think, them. Yeah, it'll catch on for like a hundred percent. Yeah, we've been trying to get it to catch on for like eight years with, uh, with the Heath Heath Ledger one. We, it, had, it hasn't been a concerted effort, though. We just need to put more more focus yeah. on. <laughs> what we need to do is double down the classic, <laughs> the classic <Yeah>. move, <laughs> like explaining your stand up joke after it after it fails. Yeah, yes. a thousand yeah. points of light stay the course. I believe George Bush Senior said, and that's what you should be doing. Mm-hmm. A lot of people telling you you're taking the wrong path. It's not funny. Stop. I'm well, unsubscribing. Comedy is objective and they're wrong. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> fucking true. Likes don't matter. Likes don't matter. Burn more cockins is funny. That's funny. It is. <laughs> Objectively. <laughs> it's math. I, I don't get it. Yeah, it's just mathematically provable that that's funny. 
Yep. Yeah, that's how jokes are judged, man. I I sent it to to Deep Blue, the chess computer, and he told me it's funny. So, <laughs> man, Deep Blue's still kicking around. Probably, I don't know, or Watson, whatever the whatever the good one is, well, the new one, the Jeopardy one, Watson. Yeah, you want the one that can probably beat people like Go as opposed to chess at this point, right? I don't know. That's a good question. Viewers, if or listeners. If there are any chess and go podcasts or and or AI podcasts out there, there are actually probably a hundred percent those things. Oh yeah, I'm sure there are. Chime in, join us. We genuinely want to hear from you. But Paul, I think the ritual now is since you are the one that chose this book, give us a a, an intro and a a brief to you know explanation of why. Tell us the book. What is it? Who wrote it? What's what's going on with this book? You know how it works. This book. The snow is dirty or dirty snow, depending on which copy you got. Which which copies did you guys get? New York Review of Books. Dirty snow. Dirty snow. I got the snow is the snow is dirty. Is it the Oop. same translator? I'm curious. Um, Does this even say who the translator was, man? Uh, I'm not. Sh- oh, I don't know. Mine's good. Howard Curtis. Howard Curtis. Uh, okay, it's different. Oh, oh shit! Interesting. Well, that'll be four different books. Though. You have a is that a Penguin edition, Paul? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Penguin Classics, even better than Penguin Normal. <laughs> right. <laughs> but not uh, as good yeah. as fucking Pangolin Classics. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> Which is another animal. It's a definite whole other animal. It's actually, yeah. incidentally, one of my favorite animals. But a Pangolin? Why? Yeah, They're cute. They are cute. <laughs> all right, I'm sorry, Paul. What's going on, man? Tell yeah. us all about this book you picked. Spill the tea, please. So, The Snow is Dirty by Georges Simenon. Belgian author. Um, I picked it because I wanted to read a Simenon book on the podcast because the first book we picked for our club was by Simenon. It was Gabe's pick. It was The Widow. And we all gave it five bags. It was... Probably the highest rated book we've. I, wait, is that true? No, no. We gave uh, the, the only book that was been unanimous fives was the Mountain Lion. Yes, that's true. I got him. Yeah, that's right. But we all really liked the Widow, and I was like, I really like this author a lot. So I actually went uh, to my local bookstore in Vermont and found like twenty used copies, like old editions of Simonon book, and I bought like all of them. So I've been slowly reading them. And I wanted to pick one of the ones I, I bought for the podcast, but they were like all out of the print um, and like way too expensive to buy. So yeah, you got some another one. You got some like incidentally, just not to derail, but just like Paul, did you pick some like fancy rare, rare book editions? Cause you just bought that shelf. Cause I saw the shelf yeah. before you bought it. And then you, and then you like, texted us later with a pit photo and you're like i bought the shelf and yeah, like, i bought like tons of them yeah what's the most expensive one you got i'm just curious now i don't even know i haven't really looked them up but i've looked okay. up some but um some are like hard covers and i think i mean even that one you gave me for christmas is like 35 40 bucks on ebay i think yeah the cat that was mm-hmm. a good one i read that one but uh I picked this one because it was the one we I could find that was like still 
I don't think it's in print anymore, but we all ended up being able to find it. And I just figured every any Simonon book is just good. So I picked it. I think this this one is like if anyone's interested, I think this one is like one of the more continually printed ones, specifically because, right? Like New York Review of Books I I believe like keeps their their catalog continually reprinted, but um this would be one of the more accessible things to read. I mean, it's got its little yeah. it's got its little apt afterward by Volman and all that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, I didn't have one. I didn't have an afterward. I I was I did not like the afterward. We'll talk about that, I think, but Okay. Yeah, actually I I do agree with you on that. But um so the basic premise of this book is like it's about this young uh French 19, 18 year old kid living in occupied France, I think, right? Or was it Belgium? I never really got the grasp of where they were. I think that's part of I what makes it, was... it interesting is that it's a lot of it is yeah. left kind of vague. Um yeah. and you know, I think it's it's implied just because of Simonon's own background that it's German occupied France in World War Two yeah. or or somewhere thereabouts. But but nowhere is explicitly named yeah yeah the only reason we come to that conclusion is because it was written in 1948 and it just kind of makes sense that that would be what he was writing about um but it's about a young kid named frank who's the son of a uh brothel owner his his mother latte lote lot something like that later she uh she owns a brothel and um he's just kind of like this degenerate 19 year old kid who um has like all this mess of you know men coming into the brothel just throughout his whole life he's just kind of living in this like degenerate lifestyle and it obviously affects his uh behavior he starts hanging out with some some rough people and gets kind of like a taste of a taste for more violent behavioral acts and uh, ends up killing someone I think in the is it is he the person that kills like the the small man within like the first five pages he kills a big fat guy but well he kills the big fat guy like in the first or second chapter but I think he like punches a uh small you're th- like you're, you're you're thinking of uh so he has this like boastful friend named Croner. Oh, Croner uh, kills him? Who's I mean it's not even clear. Croner's just sort of like yeah. a brag a braggart, so he's just kind of like describing cool shit that he quote unquote did, but like it's never established. Okay. It always takes me a while to like check into a book and I always tend to forget like the first five pages. So I but he ends up killing for sure two people. Um, and he kind of has this like sort of like this uh, just kind of a spiral into like wanting to be caught, wanting attention, wanting to grow in the ranks of whatever like crime syndicate he's like even imagining is around him. Um, and then the last probably, I think it's the last section or at least like the last few chapters of the book is him getting picked up by police and being questioned in a uh some sort of camp or prison place 
and uh yeah i mean it's basically that? that's basically the whole the book's basically divided in half by that right there's basically yeah. the first half is him outside the the prison and the second half is him inside the prison um i have three sections in mind well i'm just saying in terms of like total page count it's like a r- roughly half and half it seems oh. like a, a two-act structure basically and i i would say like your description of him is almost charitable in the sense that like i, I would describe frank as like a genuine psychopath like a a, a, a tr- like a damaged and truly terrible person it seems like based on like the more you know his background's fleshed out it seems like that's been true you know since birth or like you know there, there's that weird question of like where does the seed of it where does the seed of it uh begin but like it's it's matured and on its inevitable route to you know the start to the end of the book by the time we meet him in the yeah yeah i mean the the book basically opens with him doing a a nonsense killing of like just for no reason he asks to borrow cromer's knife and just sort of resolves for basically no reason to kill this uh, I'm just gonna say German, even though it's not the occupying force is never named. I'm just just right. for shorthand. I'm just gonna say German. Um, to kill this German officer that he sees in the bar one night, and uh, he does. And then he sort of, like you said, Paul, he sort of sees one of his. I mean, this whole thing takes place in a sort of unnamed, like uh, seemingly smallish town. Uh, or very small city um, and in and around Frank's essentially tenement building, um, sort of a a housing complex. And he sees one of his neighbors go by and he sort of like coughs conspicuously and and almost as if he's sort of trying to get the guy to notice like, hey, I'm I'm here. And when you hear tomorrow that someone's been murdered here, remember that I was here. And I think um, like, so... I believe these were his contemporaries and the immediate comparisons that are always drawn or that I saw consistently drawn in a couple like reviews and stuff that I was reading were that. Yeah. I mean, Simonon is a, an incredibly famous, especially at the time, right? Like French. Belgian. But well, I mean like, uh, I guess, uh, regarded speaking French, culturally French regarded as French, like yeah, yeah. Parisian kind of person. Um, who had some own, you know, biographically had some questionable status during the Vichy France era <laughs> of World War II. Uh, and so, like, yeah, so so the assumption, the, the best um, model to think about the context of the story, the setting, would be that, I would say. And yeah. oh, and and also uh, that like, at the same moment, right? Like, wasn't he vying in in the same territory as like the existentialists, but a little bit earlier? And that this gets a lot of comparisons to specifically Latranger, and just just for the fact of the um, kind of pointless killing that starts off the whole story. I mean, I think one thing that I think is interesting is that Paul, you mentioned that we had sort of before we started recording these episodes and we were just doing this for the love of the game. Uh, <laughs> we had, we had read uh, another one of Simonon's novels, the widow. 
And that book was is directly cited by Camus as being a sort of precursor to The Stranger. Right. And The Stranger sort of came out. So, so that book, The Widow, and this book, Dirty Snow, kind of sandwiched The Stranger in between them. The Stranger came out in 1942. This was 1943. And The Widow was, I think, 41. Um, maybe maybe even a little earlier. But I, I think so, yeah. I think it's interesting that that both of these books are compared to The Stranger which sort of came out in between them. And The Widow is like my only now because of, you know, the book club. It's my only frame of reference. Whereas Gabe, I know you've been reading a ton and Paul, now you've you basically bought out an entire shelf. So I'm, I mean, like, do you find do you find this to be consistently kind of like the vibe worldview? I don't know. Subject matter. Oh, completely. I mean, Gabe hinted at it you know when we were doing it for the love of the game that Simonon just kind of writes this way it's just like he he kind of shows a a bleakness to the world that is very personalized within its characters i would say like you you were saying that frank is just like a like cut and dry psychopath which i kind of agree with but there's also enough characterization in enough moments where i'm like and he's his depiction is so well rounded and thought out that i'm like maybe he was just a sociopath with some like <laughs> desires to be a psychopath like there's a lot of psychoanalysis that you can do if you're into that in all of the books i've read where you're trying to like figure out someone's personality uh which is really fun to me and um but yeah i would say that simonon is really good at showing that bleakness and also bringing out what is like wrong to him about culture in all the novels that i've read like the last one i read was the cat which gabe i hope you read because that was like a very different one than i've read and i think it's a lot different than a lot of the books he's read it's basically like about an old married couple that end up not speaking to each other for like three years and only writing each other notes and that talks a lot about like um just how people end up being married in French society around his time in the 40s and 50s and 60s and um how like getting out of a marriage is actually like very difficult and um but I don't know he has a way of bringing up cultural issues that are still very personalized and they're not they're not ever like outwardly like this is what I'm talking about it's kind of just like in the backdrop of his stories which I really like about him. It's like, I'm telling a story and these issues are in this story, but it may or may not be why I'm writing it. Would you agree with that, Gabe? Yeah, I think um, Simonon, you know, in his, his detective novels and in some of these, um, the Roman Dour, as they're, as they're called, uh, the hard novels, um, which he sort of started writing after he had already been writing the the McGray detective novels for a while because he wanted to be taken more seriously. Um, he's, I, I think like, I, I think this is really, really distinct from the sort of existential fiction, the Camus and Sartre of, of the world in that like the, so Frank Friedmeier in this book, I think is much, much 
more contemptible and disgusting of, of a person than say the protagonist of the stranger is but is also much much more relatable in some ways for that reason like i've i've always i haven't read the stranger in a long time but it always struck me reading those books that like no one is like this no this is this is not the internal psychology of these people is ridiculous it doesn't make any sense and okay i get it but i it 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 is it doesn't resonate with me frank are you talking about with, with the stranger with the stranger yeah. and i think one of the things that simonon does is in describing especially some of his sort of I don't want to call them villains because I don't think that's what he's engaged in, but like some of his characters that do hideous things. Um, he has a, a unique talent for making you relate to those people way more than you want to, than you feel comfortable doing. Uh, and I think that that's true here. Um, the, the book feels like a one-two punch where like you basically like, I, I haven't had this experience in a while, but like, I found myself dreading in the first half, right? Basically, like the things that I knew that were set up that were going to happen, very specifically sissy and all that. I was just like, fuck, like, I know, I know what's happening. He's going to have some old fucking pedophile, you know, he's going to string this girl along and all this kind of shit. And, you know, Frank's doing it for these inchoate to him, but like, you know, increasingly like scaled up reasons of trying to just like i don't know find some limit to himself like it, it but but he's it, the whole book is like here's why this person's a, a fucking psychopath here's why they're contemptible here are a number of monstrous things they can do and here's all these descriptions of him you know just being malignant and hating everyone in his life bam jailed interrogation and then it's like, yeah, it's very like uncomfortably humanizing. Yeah, it's such a it's such a jarring. I mean, I think like if Camus and Sartre's novels are existential, like I don't think it's fair to call Simonon nihilistic, but it's it's closer to that end of the spectrum, and I would argue better for it. It's more relatable and more realistic than uh, say The Stranger or Nausea or something like that for me. And I think you're right, Matt, that like the the shift halfway through where he's imprisoned. I mean, there, I have a lot to say about the second half of the book, but it's such a it's it the narratively what it does is so interesting to in terms of the way we think about Frank, because like the shit that Frank is involved in is disgusting. He, yeah. you know, he just kills this this German officer for no reason, which obviously like we could talk about the morality of killing German officers in World War Two. Uh, you know, I'll go on the record as being for it, um, but but like the 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 description of it and Frank's you know quote unquote reasoning about it is completely absurd and 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 bad and like not you know he's not he says later on in the book you know I'm not a patriot I'm not a I'm not a you know resistance fighter I'm none of that he doesn't care it's just for the, these own sort of his own obscure reasons and as Matt was sort of hinting at he ultimately you know sort of romances this young girl uh who lives across the hallway from him in his in his apartment building ultimately only to uh essentially pimp her out to cromer uh his his seedy criminal friend um without her knowledge which is right. just like it's so it's so disgusting 
it's so it's disgusting all- and so odd and i i still i'm trying to think of like his motivation for doing it and i it's so i i can't figure it out it, it's some sort of power play he's trying power- to i feel like he's just like plunging he's like feeling out the like it feel you know the best description i can think of is he's just like feeling out the contours of how little he can care and like yeah it it, it kind of reminded me of like uh, it was like some like a little kid like lighting like a dead rat on the fire or something like that (laughs) it seemed like in the same realm of just like i'm just doing this thing and i don't care about the morals of it i just like want to play in my demented way and and uh, he he for him in his mind there's all these connections that he draws between consciously or unconsciously between sex and death like he talks about killing the the um officer at the beginning as a sort of losing of his virginity and there are all of these sort of like weird semi-sexual moments where like great violence is happening and he he sort of watches the um, the men that come into his mother's brothel, who I think it's important to note, just plot-wise, are many of them are high-ranking German officers. Her right. her her whorehouse specifically caters to um, uh, Nazi officials, um, and so there's this sort of connection between sex and death for Frank throughout. Um, the only two things worth writing about: get that coffee. <laughs> no. Uh, no. <laughs> but you're right i I, you know and like french roast (laughs) dark dark french roast noir dark dark. (laughs) get that get that ethiopian single origin (laughs) but i i actually you know like a lot of you know random other things things i've consumed media i've consumed kind of like flashed in my head during different moments of this uh but another you know may i may i direct you to episode one shella andrew vax the phantom menace (laughs) exactly (laughs) uh and it's it's just that you know you've one of the more classically noir notions i think you get in this is that conflation of sex and death and uh, and a kind of transactional world of complete coldness. Like, I think that was very like prevalent in Shella and, I, and some other noir stuff I've read is just the world simplified in a terrible way to monetary transactions and a lack of any difference between fucking and killing and this kind of thing like i don't know that 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 those themes just felt very in your face you know because frank was raised literally with a mother who was a prostitute i believe and then eventually like opened her own whorehouse and like he's just raised on that and i think you know it's interesting to say like frank frank is like in terms of the sort of class structure of his and i thought i thought simonon did such an amazing job in this book of describing the sort of like social intricacies of the apartment building that Frank is living in at the time and the little town that they're in and the sort of like that the habits and the routines of the neighbors and the the, the jobs everyone has and who's talking to who about what and it just it, it really captured I think that sort of like oppressive kind of gossipy but like with life and death implications feel of like Nazi occupation where you don't know who's watching and you don't know who's talking to who and what they're talking about 
um, it, 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 you really felt that tightness in this. And so Frank and his family are sort of like hated, not only because of the, what they're doing, like in terms of having a whorehouse and it being immoral and gross and serving German officers, but also because they ha have money and no one else in the apartment complex does. And they have all of this, you know, like coal is like one of the main currencies that they talk about. And they have like all, all of the, these stores of coal to keep their, their apartment warm. And I felt like it's just his description of like the coal, the politics of who has coal and who doesn't in the apartment building was just fantastic. I, I also really, I also really like the, uh, the overabundance of food. Like she made a point to like have all of her workers eat tons of food to the point where like everyone was overweight and there was always food on the table. <laughs> and, and, and Simonon describes like the smells going up to the apartments and they can like, she just wants to make sure they all smell it, but they can't eat it. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> but one thing I wanted to go back to in terms of um, uh, Shella is that I think that this, this book does a much better job of humanizing almost, I would say almost all of the characters in a way that Shella, Shella really didn't. Like, I, I think you read Shella and you're like, wow, this is a different world that I'm stepping into. And it feels like mm -hmm. overtly noir, overtly kind of like Sim City, um, <laughs> or Sin City, not Sim nice, City. Nice, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Sim yeah. City's a little different. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this one, and that's one reason I like Simonon so much though, is that like he, he gives you these characters and you relate to them with their inner, inner monologues, especially like I, with Frank, he is such a freaking psychopath. He's terrible, but those little snippets of inner monologue or little thoughts that Simonon puts in there, like one off, one off lines, it like, you can think, wow, I've like had a similar thought to that and I can relate to that really well. Um, and it makes you feel uncomfortable because you're like, you know, this character is so fucking terrible and he's having this moment and it's like, wow, I don't know when I've thought that, but I feel like I have. And it, I don't know. I really like that about- You don't, you don't even have to have thought it necessarily. It's just more like, even if you've heard it for the first time and you feel the resonance, of that sort of agreeing with some part of you, it's disturbing, you know, like, yeah, it could be, it could be the first time you've, you've heard it or seen such a thought voice, but it's like the disturbing aspect is like, it's relatable <laughs> still somehow. And that's fucked up. And, and I agree with you that like with noir, because like, I think Vox operates maybe, I don't know, I'm not super familiar, but like in more of a genre perspective, like, with the genre stuff, you're invited to like, yeah, step into a, a parallel reality. It feels sometimes you're like, okay, here are the rules of noir. Like, here's a more like prescriptive kind of genre, you know, narrative, and you know the rules, and you and you're just you're leaving reality. Whereas this, yeah, it just like it cleaves too close to like random truths, and you know, like it's very intentionally, I think make creating a disgusting horrific human being and it's an it's a it's what they would call the anti-hero now right the sort of prestige tv <laughs> like anti-hero yep. type of person character yeah i think like in terms of the the genre question and the sort of like the question of reality and like what sorts of like what sorts of rules uh, uh, is, does the world have here uh i think you're right matt that in in noir there's sort of like you know 
certain parameters that the genre sets for itself for characterization for storytelling and i think in this book you don't get that not only because of the way that Timonon writes Frank and the events of the story, but because, and maybe this is opening it up a little too fast or too wide, uh, too early. But to me, this is really a, this is really a war novel. This is really, this novel is really about World War II more than it is about any individual person. Uh, and I think that, you know, specifically the sort of like overlap between that you get halfway through, which is jarring, right when frank is arrested and and put in this nazi sort of interrogation prison and but really what that is is a continuation of the sort of like blind like meaningless indifference that frank's been exhibiting the entire story carries right. over like just directly into the way that he's treated by the by the uh, occupying forces in the prison and i think that that is very intentional and very like that was very striking to me. I don't know. I don't know how you guys felt about the the second half um, and the whole sort of war angle. Well, I didn't really think about it until you sent that text, or you sent you sent out a tweet that was like, "What was it like the the best uh, World War Two not I forget what it was, but you were basically saying, yeah, I think it was one of the, one of the best not like novels about World War Two that I've ever read. Yeah, and I I really didn't. Uh, I think I have a tendency to just focus on what's happening with the characters. And I, I of course understood the context, but I have more of a tendency to, to more, to just focus more on like what's happening with it personally. Um, but after you said that, I was thinking about it more and I was like, yeah, this, all, all of these, the whole plot really wouldn't have happened without the war. Yes. That, and, and you guys are kind of bringing up the thing that, was giving me a glimmer of hope and something that felt pretty much hermetically sealed, pure fucking evil. Uh, <laughs> like, I feel like I was just hot boxing despair. Uh, but like, I think that's the that's the out is like, um, Dutch oven of despair. <laughs> yeah, just smell it, fucker. Uh, but like, that it's only because like. How to, uh, I'm, I'm, I had a nice they're, way they're, to put it. They're the context, a, they're, they're in a machine already. Like they're in a context where these kind of things were, are always going to flourish. And you see somebody who is the like purified, you know, you know, fucking alien, perfect, pred, you know, perfect organism kind of of this world uh, inside of a larger circle that is like the world that created him. And like all of this only makes sense and feels inevitable in that world. And that world doesn't necessarily have to exist. And I feel like that's like, so like the, the glimmers of hope are always on like the kind of like outskirts and fringes of this, of this novel. I think in moments like when Frank sees that woman in the window and stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's, there are various moments through the, throughout the text, uh, including, I mean, I think most dramatically at the end, which we, we can we, we don't have to talk about necessarily right now, but when um, Holst and and Sissy visit him in prison and Frank hears about Holst's son mm -hmm. and um, sort of there are, all, there are all these other sort of glimpses of like what life could have been for Frank 
under different circumstances, who, who he could have turned out to be, like what sort of alternative paths he might've taken. And none of them are ever really, you know, the book's written in such a way that we're not, we're not necessarily looking at things from Frank's perspective all the time, but it's sort of like a, it's kind of like an over the shoulder camera. So we get a little <laughs> bit of what, we get a little bit of what Frank's thinking, but I, I think you never really get the sense that any of those possibilities are like super real to him. And maybe a little bit in those sort of fever dreams about the woman in the window, Matt, that you mentioned, right? You know, it, which is just, just, when Frank is in prison and starts to sort of lose track of time, he sort of starts trying to keep his sanity by, following this woman's routine that he can see out of his prison window and she goes out and, and airs her laundry and stuff like that. Um, and he sort of imagines, you know, what, what her husband does and what his life would be like if, you know, they had been together or whatever. Uh, but I think you're, you're totally right in pointing out that Frank is a, is a creature of this context, but you know, that cre Frank was born in this context and he's basically Bane uh he, <laughs> yeah he, he's born in it molded <laughs> by it i was uh, born you find in a, we finally did it yeah we did it we All tried right. last episode for some somehow didn't we we did and yeah, we, failed, we failed and now we've we really succeeded failed. but it, it has it's, to come organically it's because it's appropriate now mm -hmm. i mean it's the but dark yeah, it's I, I, think... I was born in the dark i mean this is the dark I the, was the, born the dark, in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> you were merely a visitor um but yeah i think that simonon does that in the, all the novels that i've read by him he he actually he he has a framework of the of of life around his characters and the framework seems to always affect the characters within it in a really profound way and it's like they get stuck in like a box and their worldview is shrink maybe and it's always like a good exercise for me to be like yeah what if Frank didn't have this framework? What if he grew up with a father? What if the what if his mom didn't make these choices? Would his personality be the way that it is? And I think for like the psychological aspect of my interests, that interests me a lot. It's like it's like the nature versus nurture type, whatever. Like, would this person yeah. have been this way without the circumstantial framework that they're in? And I think um, I, I think it's I, it's important to point out in that connection that his mom is as bad, if not worse, of a person than Frank is. I mean, she's a monster in and of herself. She's sort of like, you know, she reminded me of 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 um, uh, what's her name the the like really nice professor from Harry Potter who's really secretly evil and has like the pink office and is just like the worst. You know who I'm talking about. Morgan, yeah. who is it? Umbridge, Umbridge, Dolores Umbridge. Umbridge. Yeah, Dolores Umbridge. You know, because that's a great name. Yeah, and and you know, because Frank's mom goes out of her way to like put perfume on and look really nice and primped and everything, when really she's pimping out underage girls to Nazi officers and like essentially grooming them and then kicking them out of her house when they get too old. Yes. Um, well, you know, she reminded awful. me of uh Epstein. she reminded me of uh of Granny from Spirited Away. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Granny. Does, does she pimp girls out? Yeah, I don't know, but she 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 uh she basically like enslaves people to work at her like true bathhouse and the way true. she treats her giant fat baby son is really <laughs> is really is really similar to the way that she treats Frank. She treats Frank like a All baby. All right, you're selling like me. Perfect, you're selling me. 
yeah. I'm buying it, dude. I think that's right. And I, every time she like spoke to Frank, I was like a little bit disgusted in a, in a weird way. Like you're being nice to him and you're like his mother and you love him, but you're like gross and terrible too. And you should, I don't know. Well, it was gross. You, Those interactions were gross. If you were sort of, you know, all you can, because the book is, I think, so, so vague and washed out and, and giving you any kind of route out of just constantly questioning what could have been or like alternate realities or counterfactuals or whatever like you can still kind of armchair psychologize with the mom and be like she was the first person for whom it seems like he could kind of gain a worldview as as that kind of thing and then like despise it but it poisons him. And so, you know, his initial, like maybe somewhat moral instinctive reaction that this is bad or, or that people are bad, or, you know, these people are bad His mom's bad. Uh, seems maybe, maybe it could have toxified him. And now he's like, now he's just trying to go for this kind of game of chicken with, with death <laughs> ultimately is what it resulted in where he's just like, and the world shit, you know, he reminded me of like, if Holden Caulfield was just more fucked up, yeah, because yeah, you know, there's a big element of like people are phony also in his because he, he's a he's a teenager still like. Yeah, I had a little bit of like. I, I hate to even put it in this category, but there because he was so young, I can't discount it as not not a coming of age story, but there has to be a different word for that. Just like the mind of a of a younger teen boy um, being explored. It's definitely not coming of age. <laughs> you but said this before. I, didn't I know you call buildings Roman. Didn't you say that for a previous book? Buildings. Roman. I talked about. I talked about that with the lion, the mountain lion, right? That I thought, or no, Gabe. Gabe called it a coming of age story. I can't remember, but yeah, I did. I did that. <laughs> I don't think this is really. I mean, I get what you're saying, but like, I don't. I also don't think this is that at all because, like one of the main features of that sort of story for me is that there's like a like a lesson or something <laughs> and, there's or really, a, and there's really not like frank never has a or your future yeah yeah frank never has that <laughs> he doesn't know, want one we can yeah exactly and we can talk about sort of what he takes from that last interaction with holtz and, and sissy um, yeah, I do. That's but, that's the only thing that I feel like there was some growth, but we should talk about that maybe later. I think it, I think by that point he's just basically lost his mind. Is my <laughs> that was my sort of read on it. I mean, I think so. So basically, I mean, I, Frank definitely has some issues, some like parent issues beyond his mom, which is part of this weird relationship he has with. So okay, so basically, right, he pimps out Sissy after like romancing her, and she's like like what 14, 15, 15. something like that. She's 15. supposed to be. Um, and he takes her to the movies and she sort and of he fingers like, her and then, you know, he's, fingers then he's like, her she's all good to his he, pedophile friend. <laughs> well, yeah. Cause he determines that she's right. a virgin and then he, cause uh, that's what his friend cares about. And he ultimately winds up sort of, you know, basically pimping her out to this guy. And, um, she runs out into the snow and he tries to find her and he can't and, he is arrested before he can figure out what happened to her. And so he doesn't know if she's alive or dead. And I mean, he, she does come back, but she's very sick um, with pneumonia or something, presumably. Right. Yeah. And uh, 
her father, Frank is sort of has this weird feeling about relationship with her father where he's constantly sort of trying to go out of his way to pass him in the hallway to see if he's going to hit him or, or attack him or say something to him or anything. And he never does. Um, and, you know, one of the sort of, I wouldn't call it a subplot, but it comes up a couple times that Frank doesn't know who his father is. And it might yeah. be, it, it might be this police inspector that his mom knows who comes to the apartment. It might be someone else. And so I think he kind of has this strange relationship with his neighbor Holst. Holst. Um, Holst. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, so I think that's just worth noting. He's got daddy. Yeah, but it's, you some, know, he's got some daddy definitely. issues for sure. But it, you know, I mean, you think what do you, it's one of like the final, like maybe little life preservers you're going to get thrown at the end that is denied you. It's like the last one. It's like maybe it's the, you know, maybe it's just the uh, paternity that that's fucked him up. It's like, it, it, it's like the final and easiest kind of explanation for why a person is messed up, right? Is like, fucking degenerate single mom kind of <laughs> but that's not given to you either you don't know yeah. and it's not holst it turns out it's just a person he's latched an arbitrary meaning to because of circumstance in a search for it seems like someone to beat his ass and punish him a little bit as well like he wants it he's like well that comes out too in like the one woman who's working at or the one girl who's working at the brothel that he ends up like not really having feelings for but is interested in longer than the other girls is uh is it annie annie who's like he describes her as being like very beautiful but she has like this kind of disdain view outward disdain view of the men she has to have sex with and he kind of like is attracted to her ability to like brush him off um so i think there is something to be said about him like kind of desiring punishment not only from a father figure but also from like a female figure maybe maybe a love interest if he were to get that far someday but he, he didn't i saw um, annie as more of a peer that he was recognizing someone who is more t attuned to the the way in which to manipulate people while feeling nothing and he was like oh I, th I that's what i that's my that was my take from that was like he was just more intrigued by like what he thought was like a fellow traveler well, <laughs> I, do, I do think those things go hand in hand right the, the the ability to take punishment of various types while not feeling anything so you know and, and i think you're right matt that that that's something that he sort of admires in annie uh, but also, I think that is sort of, it's also this sort of challenge, right? Like, what is it going to take for me to fucking feel something, right? So, I mean, there's, when when he's pondering the possibility of being tortured by the the Nazis, it's it's mentioned that he sort of used to, like, just stick himself with tacks as a kid. Right, right. Just, to, just to, like, you know, uh, see. I hurt myself today. <laughs> see if i still feel yeah <laughs> it's me when i drink coffee without heartburn medicine in the morning <laughs> you're just being trent, you're being trent reznor 
I take my coffee black like my fucking soul, dude. Yeah. Ow. Yeah. Frank Reznor. Uh, so. <laughs> Johnny Reznor. <laughs> Trent Cash. Okay. Uh, but, but yeah, I think that this, this whole question of like Frank's, because I, I don't even think it's a search for meaning, which I think it would make it sort of something closer to a coming of age coming story of age. or something like that. It's just like, uh, like nothing. He's just grasping for nothing. He doesn't know what it is. He doesn't know what he's trying to do. He has no motivations. He's just like yeah. lit literally flailing. Uh, it seems what, to me. But that, but to me, that is kind of how I felt as a teenager. I feel like just like, like looking back, I feel like I was just a, a, a puddle of impulses that had, I wasn't searching for meaning in my like outward cortex or whatever. But that is what I was doing when I was stumbling through the fucking darkness of being fifteen to nineteen. You know. So, but I still, I, I agree though. It, like thematically. I don't think it could be classified as a coming of age story. There's no lesson. There's no real growth. Well, but keep going. Sorry. No, I was going to say that there is something about uh, a story told from a teenager's or young 20 something person's perspective that has similar themes to me that uh, can resonate in a way that a coming of age story does. Well, that yeah, so this is what I, I was saying, like, you know, like, you know, when you're seven, and then I think multipliers of that when you're about 14, 15, like, and then in your 20s, I think the, the common thread maybe is just this, like, feeling out of the world and its rules and your place in it. And, like, literally, you don't know what the they are, so you're just kind of trying to garner reactions from the environment that you're in and then depending on what comes back at you that's what you take in and you adjust your behavior accordingly but like for frank that world that he's in again to reiterate is like so it, it, it's just so like violent and arbitrarily uh ordered and uh hypocrisy and all this kind of stuff are what are seem to be rewarded and there are just these machinations and rules that are like so kafkaesque and bureaucratic that like you, you're trying to feel out the machinery around you and it's just it just keeps evading your grasp and i think that's the kind of stuff that is like plaguing frank and i think it's interesting that it's like it, it yields in him you know i don't know yeah like looking to what he finds as the reaction of the his world doesn't discourage him from continuing to like become more and more of a violent shitty person because that's the world yeah and, and i think i mean i think no i think you said it right matt like one of the other features of those sort of classic coming in you know i mean you're right paul even if even if they're sort of not searching for meaning you know in a conscious or deliberate way they often stumble upon it in spite of themselves right in those stories and that does not happen here like the the world that frank lives in is like <laughs> actively hostile to to any type of meaning making or sense making in its absurdity and contradictions and like just the 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 
the faceless nonsense of Nazi bureaucracy, which I feel like this book captured in a way that like even books that are directly addressed to that don't do as well. Yeah. Um, it, it, it precisely because of the sort of like Frank's struggle in prison, trying to like find a way to keep track of shit and be like, okay, here's the pattern that they're engaged in. Like, here's when they're going to interview me about what topics and here's, here's what they want to know. Here's the, you know, he has like this sort of like Arya Stark-esque list of names that he keeps repeating to himself. Um, and he feels like he's getting a handle on it and it's just completely wrong and it has nothing to do with what's actually happening. And yeah. I, I, that I felt that sense of just despair like so acutely when I was reading that section. Like, so like basically what happens just plot wise is, you know, Frank's arrested uh and you know at first he sort of thinks okay someone turned me in for you know he had a gun he wasn't supposed to have and he had killed a nazi officer and someone else um <laughs> that he knew from childhood which is a really fucking depressing scene that maybe we can talk about uh he it, it was a watchmaker's wife um that he knew and he went and killed her to take the watches to sell to another nazi officer um and so he's done all this terrible stuff and he's arrested and he's trying to be like, okay, who turned me in? What did they turn me in for? I'm here, whose murder am I here for? Or is it the gun or whatever? And it turns out that it's none of that, that it's he's there because essentially he passed off a bank note that the Nazis were able to trace back to a particular facility. And it meant that someone within their ranks had stolen the money. And so they right. didn't give a shit about Frank at all. They didn't care who he had killed or what he had done. All they wanted to know was where he had gotten the money <laughs> so they could figure out who within their own ranks was corrupt. He was like the least important, you know, and so he's in his head thinking like, I've done all these terrible things and I'm getting in, in some perverse way that he's getting recognized for these terrible things that he had done um, when really he was just a, a non-factor in the entire affair the, the whole time. Right. Yeah. The fucking yeah. key is always recognition like that's what he's sort of seeking and another refrain is oh is the phrase who cares like it kind of I, it might be one of the more one of the most repeating things i would i would i think was like in the in the book was just the the, the phrase who cares ever like there'd be this long list of uh you know realizations and fucking epiphanies and 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 whatnot and how things are interrelated that he hadn't seen before. And then it would just, it would just end with who, who gives a shit. Who cares? <laughs> like, doesn't, who cares? There was also a section where, um, I think it was after he murdered the, the watchmaker's wife. Or was it a watchmaker? I don't remember, but mm -hmm. he, he keeps being, um, he keeps thinking that everyone secretly knows like what he has done. And he, he's like kind of walking around and he's like, he knows. Oh yeah, they know. Oh, she knows for sure. And it's it's all completely in his head, but in those moments reading it, you're like, do they know? They probably know something's wrong. Something's like some screw has been loosened for sure. But it was still totally in his head. No yeah, one, no there, one knew. <laughs> yeah, there's just this especially the second <laughs> half when when he gets arrested, like there's just this overwhelming and just like exhausting like i found myself like realizing i hadn't taken a breath <laughs> in a, like a couple minutes reading the second half of this book just being exhausted by the sense of like trying to make sense out of 
something that just does is never going to fucking make any sense because it's ridiculous which is which is nazi bureaucracy and the sort of entire sort of like functioning of german occupation during this time it was just absurd and there was not like which can be writ large you know i think further to not just include nazi bureaucracy but just you know, senseless, the Life, senseless pro- proliferation of or of organization through unknown sort of, yeah, mutation and shit. It's like, and, but what's perverse too is that like Frank uh, seems to be garnering meaning for a time from the act of trying to interpret all of these moments when he's in prison that are like almost erotically and like excitingly supercharged with meaning because of the fact that he has to like account for himself and he's just trying to now play this game, which again is, you know, kind of analogous to life of buying yourself more time. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I would say like the, the novel is existentialist insofar as it says that, that what, what Frank is engaged in by the end is just simply deciding to make his own meaning out of, out of nothing on a day-to-day basis, which is, the, the existentialist thesis essentially which is that you just have to just fucking decide to make meaning out of shit that doesn't inherently have any and right. you know he just arbitrarily essentially decides i'm just gonna not tell them anything i have i could i could tell them everything and they might even let me go because the, i they, they will f- quickly find out that i don't fucking know anything i could give them cromer's name i could tell them i sold the watches to a general and that's where i got this money um, but he just essentially decides for no fucking reason, I'm just not going to. I'm just not going to say anything. And that that's where he starts to derive his like meaning on a day-to-day basis is just that sort of sheer will of resistance for no reason. Right. A sort of pointless defiance of re- reality. I, I don't know how I would describe that really, but... I would say it was just like it was just like uh like his behavior just kind of coincided with how he was behaving in his role up to that point like people don't talk to the police or the occupying force I feel like he had a little bit of like a I don't know like street mindedness in him like you just don't you don't talk and well, it, he, it, you you have clout if you don't talk so he I'm going to find meaning from that he has those like punk, like fucking punk kid rules about him too, of just like shitty kids where he's like, again, it's like kind of just more to more like pressing against the walls of authority and figuring out if there's any sort of like weak point. I mean, that's what it feels like initially. And I mean, the one thing I kind of do agree with Volman's afterward about is just sort of like, in a way he did a super slow-mo death by cop potentially by killing the officer which was arguably something that was like the most something that that was the most intentional in the sense that like it was to see if it would result in what he assumed was the inevitability of arrest and murder in in the you know sort of traitor prison thing yeah he he basically comes to grips with the fact that he's going to die. Spoiler alert. He is, <laughs> the end of the story is he's just tortured and shot. 
and it's yeah, not um, a fun book dude we we, we made this clear early <laughs> um and he comes to grips with that pretty early on like essentially as soon as he finds out about the the um like secretly marked money he knows that they'll never release him because they can't let that knowledge just get into general circulation right and so he sort of comes to grips with the fact that he's going to die pretty early on um which I think is sort of an even another sort of interesting like existential microcosm, which is like, yeah, we're all, we all are sort of coming to grips with the fact that we're going to die on whatever timetable. And we have to sort of still find things to latch onto in the meantime, whether that's just resisting these, like for no reason forces that Frank is resisting or counting the number of times that a woman opens her window and does her laundry or whatever. I found one of the things I found interesting was, uh, I, again, there's like an argument to be made for some sort of growth in Frank, right? In his conception of the reality he's in. Um, but I, 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 I don't know how you guys felt about this. I, but like the another thing that was kind of like pinging back and forth was what Frank thought about. You know, because another thing that another idea that comes up, and I had just watched a movie with Jim Belushi and Michael Caine called Mr. Destiny. It's okay. a 1990, <laughs> 1990 comedy. It's rated PG-13. It's very nice and wholesome, but I was thinking. Is it a five-bagger? It. <laughs> it's probably a four-bagger. I fu- it fucking rules. Popcorn uh, classic? It, Is it a popcorn under, classic? Underappreciated popcorn classic, I would say. And I mean that genuinely. Uh, but the concept of destiny comes up a couple times as well. And uh, I don't know. Again, this is, it's hard when you're talking about existentialism, right? Which is such like a fucking like uh, well-trod and cliche riddled and almost cringe <laughs> field. Get that coffee. Thought. You know what I mean? Right, Gabe? You as a you uh, among all of us must know that it's like rough to even say the word existentialist without people rolling I, their eyes. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think for me, not 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 even as a flex, but as just someone who I j- just has an academic background in philosophy, existentialism is the thing <laughs> that that if you hear someone talk about, you know they have never actually read any philosophy, and it's just the most cringe thing ever. How do we avoid this, Gabriel? You guys are fine. You've actually read philosophy. Whoa. Thank you. Whoa. <laughs> Get that coffee. Yeah. Thank, you. Thank but, you. Uh, so like, I don't know. I, I just was like searching through my stuff that, that I highlighted, which is pretty random, but like, so just some random thing, like, Frank, I'm begging you, listen to me. No. <laughs> Too bad for her and the girls. He was going to stay. He wouldn't run away. This is a uh, 94, page 94. Uh, he wouldn't run away in the night the way they were trying to make him do because, like, they know he's in trouble. He wouldn't hole up with Cromer or a friend of his mother's. And then his mom just says, you do as you please. And he just says, yes. And I was just thinking of the fucking yes, Chad meme. You know, what I mean? you know just like the fucking... And I'm like, yeah. similar, similar vibes in, in all the darkness that that implies as well. Like, yes. And the notion of like the tension between is he making a choice in any way or like is has he surrendered or is he making is he asserting himself? 
And I think that question is another one that's just kind of unresolved that, that, but is just sort of ambient, ambiently floating around the book. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it also bringing up the whole thing about destiny, which, which Frank talks about, you know, like you said, a few times in the second half, especially, um, and, and I think this question of like, is he giving up or is he just sort of resigning himself to, like certainly he resigns himself to his own death eventually, but it becomes this sort of like, you know, Nietzschean, like Amor Fati like thing where, you know, and of course Nietzsche is a sort of like proto existentialist, blah, 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 whatever. But, you know, his thing was sort of, you know, you have to, part of the, the point of life is to sort of come to love your own fate uh, which, you know, the existentialists would reject because fate is like this predetermined thing that they don't believe in. But anyway, that I think this, these sort of questions about destiny raise that kind of specter as well. And again, like you said, it's not really resolved. It's just kind of like... <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, it's, it was a similar ending to The Widow, I would say, right? Kind of like death by being caught. Like I'm, I'm accepting my fate um you guys remember the remember the ending yeah. yeah um so so out of the four books i've read by simonon two of them have had very similar endings just kind of like being resigned to your fate being resigned to the choices you made and the person you've become and kind of wanting to like resign yourself to being caught as a way of like being free yeah, yeah right. I mean one of one of the um one of the things that I uh love about Simonon's detective novels is that we've talked about this before and is that they basically are just like yep it was the guy you thought it was the whole time and there's not like he's not it's it's not ever like an agatha christie fucking rube goldberg mousetrap <laughs> like explanation no. of what happened it's it's the guy you thought it was for the reasons you thought it was. And there's no like big reveal. And it's just kind of like, here's uh, things that happened in the order that they happened. And it was the guy you thought it was from the beginning. Yeah. It, it's like, um, sorry. It's, it's, it's like watching an episode of the first 48, just in book four. Yeah. Like, this, <laughs> this is just detectives finding the guy that you probably think did it, or you don't know who did it yet, but you have a, an idea of who it was because it's displaying this like truthful world of shit. And, and I think that that's you know. kind of just the, there's a similar line playing out here, which is that Frank sucks and he's going to die and he sucks and dies. And that's like <laughs> this, the story. I mean, the, the I want to read this paragraph from near the end. This is Frank's sort of final speech to his interrogator in the in the prison uh, after he's visited by Sissy and, and Holtz for the last time. Um, he says, I stole the watches and I killed Mademoiselle Vilmos. That's the, the watchmaker's wife. Oh, the sister, I guess. The sister of the watchmaker in my village. I had already killed one of your officers at the corner of the blind alley that leads to the tannery in order to take his automatic because I wanted one. I did things that were much more shameful. I committed the worst crime in the world, but that has nothing to do with you. I am not a fanatic, an agitator, or a patriot. I am a piece of shit. Since you began interrogating me, I've done everything I could to gain time because I simply had to have more time. Now it's over. 
And I just feel like that's basically the book. <laughs> I did have that highlighted as well. Yeah. And that, okay, and that's, the one thing, that, oh, oh, sorry. You go first. I was going to say, the, the, this is maybe off topic, but the one line in that segment, he says, I've done things that are way more shameful. And I was thinking, what does he think is more shameful than murdering two people? And I thought it was what he did to Sissy. And I think to me, that shows an ounce of humanity. It doesn't necessarily add up to a lesson, but it adds up to some minute aspect of humanity or growth in the in the way that Frank can, which is just an ounce. <laughs> but it uh but is that what you guys thought of like what he was referring to as like the more shameful act? Yeah, def act? definitely, definitely. A hundred percent. Like the the there are like probably four instances you could point to where Frank demonstrates some potential long sense doomed flicker of like innocence or 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 purity of heart or some kind of thing. You know, he's fucked at that point and he's a shit just monster, but like you do get a very small little crumbs of just like he maybe an alternate path could have been there for him. And I think he does get a little bit of validation from, from Holst towards the end when Holst kind of tells him that story about his, his own son who, uh, you know, stole some medical supplies and was when, when caught just jumped out a window and killed himself. And, <laughs> and, you know, Frank is like, I thought it was a hilarious line. It was like, you know, Frank was, he was like, I was going to say, I wish I was your son, but that might come out wrong. And you know, he just, uh, I think Holst's line to Frank where he's just like, you know, you see uh, it's not an easy job being a man. And then Frank just kills himself after that. Basically just resigns himself to dying. I think that's the, the sort of last bit of like, semi-redemption is that Holst has this sort of sense of like you know you're fucked up but it's not it's not entirely on you yeah I uh the like the thing about the the sort of like direct just like it was who you thought it was this is the murderer they did it for the shitty brutally dumb straightforward reasons you expected like it's funny but also right like that it isn't that what's supposed to keep inviting the larger question and like even further you you mentioned what was the show paul the first 48 i i just think of like any murder mystery fucking my favorite murder like last podcast on the left or whatever and just the general like, notion of like how obsessed people are with like serial killer shit and this kind of this is I think I feel like this is like the closest you get in popular culture now to a similar type of skirting of this idea, right? Of like what everyone seems to be obsessed with is establishing a coherent rationale for like the act that occurred. And I, I do find yeah. it interesting that it's still like while we're here reading Dirty Snow and it's like, fuck, dude, this is so heavy. Like, I don't know who would I could I would ever get to, like, also read this book and, like, enjoy it. 
at the same time, there's like um, 8 billion people who listen to My Favorite Murderer. And I'm like, I don't know if it's well, completely out of line with the same themes in some ways. Well, it isn't. And I want to say this. This is my, this is my, uh, this is why fiction is, is fucking good because like, yeah, dude, read <laughs> like, this is why this book is awesome. Cause it's, it's a made up story, whatever, but it's more relatable to get into the mindset of someone who is murderous in this book than it is to le- listen to anything about serial murderers who are like beyond monstrous. They're beyond Frank. Frank, you can, you can understand his frame point or his framework and kind of put yourself in the mindset of him and you can come out with like an experience with this character but when you're just reading about like true crime and serial murders those people are like unrelatable i i I think i think that 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 one of the reasons that i like this book so much is sort of what you guys are saying and and specifically why i think it's a really good book about about world war ii specifically is that it it bridges this gap between see i always have a hard time with this right like where we're talking about you know a serial killer or a um school shooter or whatever right mm-hmm. there's always this initial reaction of specifically in the media and stuff and um of sort of like this is just this is just uh, evil incarnate. There's nothing to say about it. There's no, there's no point in analyzing it. There's no, it's just pure evil and it's a mystery, right? But of course, if you dig deeper into any serial killer or school shooter or any like seemingly, you know, like black box of violent evil, there's always a context. There's always a history. There's always a story that can be told about how you get from point A to point B as to why that person is the way they are, you know, to, to some greater or lesser degree of explanatory power. And I think placing Frank in the context of a historical moment that is probably the best example that we have in human history of just like a black box of evil, which is the Holocaust and World War II, but also using that context as itself an explanation of why Frank is the way he is. Because like we've been saying, he is molded by this context. He's created by this context. So it's not that he's just this like unrelatable, like faceless, you know, uninterpretable monster. There's a context. And that's always the case, even with stuff that seems apparently to be meaningless evil. See what you just said is what I was trying to say, but you did it a lot better. <laughs> but <laughs> but you're totally right. Also, not you know, also, but also not the tension is still like not to say, oh, this person's a product of their times, or this person is evil. It's not to do the binary, you know. It's not to excuse away something as horrific as the stuff Frank did, while also not being like. there's no explanation you know it's neither of those cases yeah i mean i and i think that that another thing that this book does really well and i think better than a lot of other books written about this topic is talk about you know i think one of the things that a lot of people are dissatisfied with when they talk about like why did this person do this evil thing or why did this awful thing happen is that the answer is often really boring (laughs) and like not particularly illuminating right 
it's this is the sort of classic Arendtian point about the banality of evil, which she specifically coined in relation to the Holocaust and, and the uh, crimes that were committed by high-ranking German officials. It, and I feel like this book captures that so well. Like there's there are ex there are it's not that there aren't explanations. It's not that these people are literal hell demons just doing things for the sake of of you know their own pleasure or whatever. But it's that the explanations might not be as satisfying as you want them to be. Um, and that's the case for a lot of individual evil acts that people do. And it's the case for sometimes large scale social evils. And I didn't pick the book. I just want that to be clear as well. That was, this was Paul's pick. And I know it's been a joke that I pick <laughs> Holocaust stuff. And this is Paul's pick. Yeah, yeah but to so, be so fair- I think if this, you want to read this... a book about the banality of evil, read this book, Skip a Rent. Well, and also to be fair, this book doesn't actually say the word Nazi in one time. <laughs> true, so. very true. <laughs> Yo, I gotta, um, I gotta piss. Pee break. Pee break. Pee. Yeah. Accomplished. <laughs> wow. Feels we did good. It. We did it, guys. We did our bodily functions. I. Uh, there was only other. I. I feel like maybe we're winding down and I wanted to just uh, randomly select some stuff that I had highlighted I, just for the shits of it. Yep. I do have one more point I would want to talk about too, but we can do it. Nah, do it, Paul. Before we start reading segments. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I, I was thinking that uh, Simonon with this book and this character of Frank in particular kind of tried to display probably one of the most revolting character. I mean, I've only read four of his novels, but I would say that this character of Frank is probably the most psychopathic, the most revolting out of the characters I've read of his. And I think he was possibly trying to display as much of Frank in a terrible light. And then by the end, make you feel sorry for him and just to see if he could do it. Right. Um, and I think with Matt, with your text of being like so like so distraught about uh like this is a mean you wrote this is a mean book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, I I don't think you would have written that if you didn't have some some feeling about his death happening the way it did and just him dying in general. So I for me, I think it was it was successful if that was one aspect of what he was trying to do with this book, like you know, build someone up in a terrible light and then tear them down, but kind of the opposite. Like by the end of it, he has a, he looks like shit. He's missing his two front teeth. He's going insane. He's crying in his jail cell. Um, and then he gets shot. Well, one, one of the phrases I latched onto was uh, something along the lines of, uh, it, it was, it was during the imprisonment scene, which is, is, that half of the book is so chock full of like phrases and just like turns of phrase and stuff that are like so pithy. And, and I highlighted a lot around there, but just something around along the lines of like, uh, it was a formality. It would have been pointless to refuse. That's, that's just that. Yeah. That, that's a deeply sad notion. And, that, and I, yeah. yeah. And I think again, like as a, just as a statement about like, 
he's he it, sort of referring to his own death there. Like right. it's this, it's this, and again, it's that 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 was the sort of the the all the hideousness of of the Nazi bureaucracy, and the sort of banality of death. It was you know he talks about people just sort of calculating numbers and figures, and that was that was the scariest thing, you know. Right. It's something that like you know we we touched on in Soul of Wood, but like, yeah, this really this really made you stare directly at it in a way more like stark way. I would say one of the things I totally agree. One of the things that I highlighted just cause it's on a similar kind of like tip to what you were just talking about, Matt, it's on two thirty three in, in our edition. So he's talking about his interrogator who he refers to as the old gentleman who is just like this, like very, very scary figure to me in the book. He's just like this, like obdurate, force of nature who's always at the desk always never goes to the bathroom never even takes a drink of water he just sits there and smokes and interrogates frank over and over again i pictured him looking like the like the farmer from babe <laughs> <laughs> wow way to ruin a ch cherished childhood classic how dare you i thought he was like i thought he looked like current day rick moranis oh man i don't even know what that looks like yeah, I thought he was described as very tall, though. So I thought, uh, babe, babe, dad. <laughs> I could, I guess, I could kind of see babe, dad. Uh, anyway, babe, dad. <laughs> that's my next Instagram account, babe, dad. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he says the old gentleman consulted one of his scraps. They knew Frank would have sworn they had known everything from the beginning. Then why all this pretense? What more did they want to know? What were they hoping for? After all, they were wasting their time more than they were wasting his. And I just feel like that's just, again, with sort of the like pointlessness, the meaninglessness of the whole sort of Nazi operation. It's just this like faceless machine, just like chewing up people and time and none of it means anything uh, in, the, yeah. in, in the sort of ultimate cashing out right and yeah. it's just the inertia of its function right it's banal very banal ghost in the shell mm. i uh the thing i i highlighted was uh uh this uh it was lucky he hadn't finished his sentence he had to get out of the habit of speaking pointless words he didn't know yet that everything he saw had its importance and became a little more important with each day you think quote unquote school he was imprisoned in a school that was refurbished as a prison. And you have a ready-made image of it in your mind. But in some cases, the tiniest detail might one day become so precious that you would never forgive yourself for not having looked at it more carefully. And uh, the idea of like ready-mades and not speaking unless you know what you mean to say was I was just thinking like there's also like some Wittgenstein kind of meditations in the prison uh, sequence, especially where again because of this context in which everything is hypercharged with meaning meaninglessness also becomes the mirrored kind of like double you know doubled in importance as well and there's all this notion of uh what things mean what and communication and what's worthwhile and what isn't and uh that was very interesting to me yeah well, by the time he's locked up the the show of lack of meaning is so apparent because of the bureaucracy that he's being withheld in 
and just like his own notions too it's just like a like a cluster of just nothing and it was really <laughs> it was a it was just like very drab to just suddenly realize he's in this position where just like all of it all of his thoughts and questions don't even matter his conspiracies aren't they don't matter like none of them come to fruition it's just it's just all bullshit one of the other and, of, and his captors his captors don't care either they just don't care yeah it's the the only thing they care about is who stole their money yeah yeah um <laughs> maybe my favorite passage in the book or one of them sort of related to what you were saying Matt about like noticing noticing details and and things that sort of gain meaning in small ways um it's on 180 and this is him in the prison um his face was buried in his jacket which he had rolled into a ball to make a pillow a jacket he was sorry to say that had been almost new when he arrived and he had been stupid at first to be so careful with it to take it off at night so that now it didn't smell as good as it might to get a good whiff of himself, to breathe in that smell of earth, of being alive, of sweat. Deliberately, he sank his nose in where it stank most, under the arms. He wanted to stink as people said outside, to stink as the earth stinks. Because outside, people think that men stink, that the earth stinks. To feel his heartbeat everywhere in his temples, his wrists, his big toes. To smell the smell of his breath, the warmth of it. To mix up the images in his mind, larger, bigger than life, things seen, heard, and lived, and others too that might have happened. To mix them all together, his eyes closed, his body still, while he listened for a certain footstep on the iron stairs. Damn. I mean, so good. that's a sort of perverse version of like mindfulness practice. <laughs> self-care in a nazi prison camp <laughs> i mean that's kind of true right another it seemed like another maybe uh superficial window or superficial exit out of uh just damn being damned seemed like maybe this kind of like <laughs> yeah like eat pray love fucking you know, feeling your body and being present in the moment, and that's what prison does to you, or something. Eat, pray, um, sniff your dirty armpits. Eat, pray, sniff your pit stains. Ooh. Uh, but that you know, that's that's not what you're you're given at the end of the day. What did I, you guys make of him referring to his last meeting with Holston Sissy as a wedding? I thought that was really gross and d disturbing. Yeah, it was like it, yeah, sure. to me, it was like the crux of his like. Just kind of going insane from sleep deprivation and living out this like weird fever dream fantasy there we didn't talk a lot about like the aspect of him having a fever was kind of a theme throughout it like right. he could be sick and i thought maybe that was going to play more of a role but it was kind of just more like a like a deranged theme throughout the whole thing and i think by the end of it he's kind of in a feverish state only he's not really sick he just has this like you know lack of sleep he's in a freaking camp he's going insane he's missing his two front teeth he hasn't changed his underwear um but yeah i, just, I thought it was definitely super tragic and sad and uh odd because he didn't even like ever say that he loved sissy it, it was it was very strange it was very strange it, yeah, I, I the the like wedding imagery there, um, felt felt a little disingenuous, but in a way that was intentional and very 
like pointedly tragic like uh i don't know he's like it's almost like this final gasp of like some sort of trad fucking notion of what his life could be and and the only way he was able to achieve something as conventional as like falling in love and getting married because well, let me, let me... Oh, well i was just gonna say sissy's the only one who like elicits one of those moments i was describing that are like there's probably you can count them on your hands where frank is like just not a self-consciously cold monster where the, the when uh they're kind of like both lying to Wimmer, the apartment next door guy, old guy, and then they like laugh and stuff. Like you can tell he's like that family for some fucking reason that's never made clear. It uh, holds some charge of meaning for him that is from a prior life almost. I think it's actually now that I'm thinking about it, I think it's it's sort of the fact that she's named Sissy is interesting because. Holst is also sort of his dad figure and he mm -hmm. says he wants to be Holt's son and she would be his literal sister in that scenario. Mm -hmm. I was going to say this is a, an exorbitant theory about this scenario but take Whoa. away the framework of uh, take away the framework of all of their lives and the circumstances that they're in and maybe like devalue a little bit Frank's psychopathy maybe that relationship could have happened and he could have had a father figure with his uh with holst as his uh father-in-law and he was kind of imagining it's it's an exorbitant theory but it, well i, I mean it, they he 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 sort of that's kind of his thinking about it at the end like he says yeah. on 240 you know when sissy and holst were there he says they mustn't stay too long frank probably wouldn't be able to stand it that was all he had and all he wanted it was his lot he had nothing before and nothing would exist after this was his wedding his own wedding this was his honeymoon his life it had to be lived all at once taken in a single dose while the old gentleman went on rummaging among his scraps they wouldn't have a window that opened laundry to hang out to dry a cradle if there had been all that then perhaps there would have been nothing at all just frank raging against destiny it wasn't whether it lasted that mattered. It just mattered that it was. And I think that's him sort of thinking about like, yeah, like a, a sort of alternate path. And maybe even that it may have been worse if it had gone that way, frankly. <laughs> I mean, they, they even hint, they even hint at that, right? Like would it, ha yeah, th that question is literally asked, right? Like, would this, would any of this have been better? Were he to, you know, the, that woman from the window that he follows who just does her laundry and has a child who he fantasizes about. Is it yet another just like, you know, from this vantage point, that looks good. Now I can romanticize it because it's unattainable kind of bullshit wherein if Frank were that husband to that woman he was fantasizing about, he'd just be a fucking monster piece of shit who is still testing the, the, the limits of, of fate by being worse and worse over time. Star Wars Obi-Wan from a certain point of view. <laughs> I have to read this passage because it's like it should have been the quote on the on the cover. Uh, and always the dirty snow, the heaps of snow that look rotten with black patches and embedded garbage, the white powder that occasionally peels off from the crust of the sky in little clumps like plaster from the ceiling. Is unable to cover the filth. Great little passage. I 
it says it all like, right there. Says it all. I do like the whole environmental vibe of like fucking the dead of winter. It's cold as shit. There's slush, but there's also like just icy, inhospitable snow and everything's fucking cold. I, I think Simonon, and this is the, what I noticed even with the one other book we I read, which is The Widow, is his descriptions of light are uh, a figure in pretty prominently uh, and always seem to just sort of like gobsmack people. Like light is like a very like tactile presence in the two books I read thus far. Yeah, it, he, the, the, the environmental description is excellent, specific, particularly in the first half when he's describing the sort of apartment and, and the bars and, yeah. and all that stuff. The whole book for me felt like it took place on the GoldenEye Nintendo 64 level surface <laughs> when you're outside in the snow and it's like this one. It just felt yeah. like the, the whole book felt like it took, <laughs> took place on that level for that's me. That's him with the semi-automatic. You should just post yeah. that and just be like Frank in, in town. <laughs> that's, a, that's actually a good idea. That'll be the meme. <laughs> Frank killing the eunuch. Yeah. <laughs> Colorize 2020. <laughs> <laughs> um, should we... Uh, is there any final thoughts before we do what we do this time? Do we do do we do Harry Potter and then scores? Is yeah. that what we do? Yeah, yeah, man. So do you want to do final thoughts with the score? I forget what we do. If we do final thoughts and I was just if you had any score. other like big points to make before we do the before the we go into our our fan favorite segment. Yeah. I mean I they're they're chopping at the bit right now, but they're drooling over the possibility of well, we're a wizard, Frank. Welcome everybody to the fan favorite segment. We literally just read another book where we take the characters from the book we just read and put them in Harry Potter houses by making them wear the Sorting Hat. That's right, and that's right. Who do, who do we start with, Frankie boy? Good Probably Frank. <laughs> the man of the hour, Frank Friedmeier. He's got to be Slytherin for me, like full. Full throttle. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I guess. It seems obvious, but we mean that in the least. We mean that in a complex way, as we do always with these designations. Uh, and I think the giveaway for Frank is like the vanity uh, that is that is extremely clear and has yeah. just been sort of like has kind of metastasized into this entire psychotic personality, but it's, it's at root, it's just vanity and self-obsession, even his uh, exploration of his own inner state. And a desire to sort vanity. of gain like some sense of notoriety, even, even in his own mind. Exactly. Like yeah. even in, even in his own death, he like is sort of obsessing about the ways that he's different than the other prisoners and he wants to be treated specially. And like, he hopes he doesn't get shot in the same place that everyone else does. Ultimately he is shot in the same way everyone else is, but of course that, you know, so yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I disdain too. for the poor yeah. that it's described early disdain for people who give in, you know, that's more of his like, uh, you know, first half of the book kind of concerns but still yeah just like basically like i'm different and i but i still you know but i'm self-obsessed and i still need people to confirm that that's true but right 
yeah yeah it's like a hyper hyper inflated ego with a lot of vanity and being like i want these certain things out of life it it doesn't necess- necessarily mean that like him killing people it makes him slytherin because hufflepuffs can kill people and rape <laughs> So it's it's more about the hyper ambition aspect of it, right? For me, all houses can murder for sure. Yes, yeah. and rape. It's you know, it's just um, and be just be generally the worst, and yeah, and just be monsters. Every or the best, or the, or the best. best. <laughs> who's, gonna win? who's gonna win? Who's gonna lose? <laughs> Look. Uh, okay, what about uh, Frank's mother, Lota? Lota, definitely Slytherin. Also, she's terrible. Yeah, she's, and she's a, uh, and she's a coward. She's a fucking coward, dude. Everyone's well. The problem is with this is that like the conniving aspect of this world makes Slytherin easy seeming clap for every. Who's not a yeah. fucking Slytherin in this book? Honestly, sissy. Sissy is definitely sissy. not. But what is she? Do we even know? Sissy Bertha. Some of the prostitutes are not. I would say. I would say they're. I would say yeah. sissy's a Hufflepuff. Yeah, yeah so I, think I'm, I think she she ultimately is still loyal to Frank in this weird, sick way. Right. I would say that Bertha is a. We don't get much out of Bertha, but I think she's a Gryffindor because she stands up for herself and like fights with Frank, and gets slapped around, and she uh, speaks her mind in a way that Hufflepuff would not. So. Yeah. What? About, what? Yeah. yeah. I just agree. And then she leaves the house. Right. Yeah. 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 Gryffindor. What Maybe about the one Gryffindor? I think Holst is a Gryffindor. Yeah, actually, I think Holst is a Gryffindor too. Yeah. 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 There's something chat about him. Yeah, he's deeply chat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He Holst reminds me of one time when I was young, when I was a kid. I I want I'm not gonna get into it, but I did something really mean and I made someone cry. Oh, and right. they're they're <laughs> Their dad came to my house and sort of like said, listen, son, that was really fucked up and offensive what you did. I'm going to give you a chance to apologize. And I'll shake your hand like a man if you do. And I was like, I'm sorry. And then it was fine. <laughs> nice. That's whole- yeah. That is I know, Holst. I know that exactly what you're talking about. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. And yeah, so that's what Holst does. And it's very Chad. What about Cromer Slytherin? Slytherin, dude, it's easy. Uh, easy yeah. Slytherin. He's what like about... one of a Malfoy's like little boy henchmen. Yeah, you know? he's like the worst. Yeah. But if they, but if those guys were pedos, <laughs> right? Yes. Exactly. Well, they very well could be later in life. <laughs> <laughs> just the the, wor- the worst Harry Potter fan fiction ever. It's just <laughs> Malfoy's pedo henchmen. As adults, <laughs> terrible. Well, we meet the pedos. No, was, yeah. no, no. <laughs> the the huffle pedos. <laughs> Slitherpede. Awful. Uh, who else was prominent? I think that's. I mean, there was the. What about? Uh, I don't know. I wrote down the characters. There's Carl Adler, who was the one that like went with. Uh, it's just a henchman. They're yeah, a lot of these people henchmen. are just too not opaque. fleshed out enough. Yeah, yeah. Old Wimmer. Yeah, there's there's not enough. I think that was it. Those are the yeah. big ones. Again, like a, another thing is that like, well, I mean, it was easy to do the Harry Potter ca- uh, characterization for certain characters, but like, 
intentional opaqueness to character is another kind of intent intentional uh, aspect of everybody in the book yeah yeah so what do you guys think about this book i loved it i let's I give really, it let's I, I'll, go, I'll go last because i was the one that i think it, that's right? the tradition yeah the picker goes last yeah. okay picker you show me to go first yeah I fucking loved it. I'm. I'll just say I'm a. I am. Call me George Simpanon because I am a fucking. I I uh, I stand Simpanon. I love Simpanon. I've loved everything I've ever read by him. So I'm I'm, I, uh, big fan, potentially to the point that it clouds my judgment. But I loved it. I thought this was um, one of the best novels that I've ever read about World War II, in my opinion. Um, even though that's not sort of like upfront, I think it becomes that it's like a it's like a it's like a 4.57 for me yeah dog so, i was about to say 4.4 4. nice well matt what's your final thoughts on it before i go just uh that you know it hmm. I've read the things around this book that this book is dealing with in such a more in your like like at the jugular just uncomfortable cold kind of analysis of this thing uh so i i feel like some people might feel like there's some sort of like familiarity to this stuff that makes it seem i don't know it didn't get i feel like it didn't get its due which i think is something that Simonon felt to himself about the book but that and his whole career really his whole career was that it didn't get its due yeah. as as something that should be in the same breath as things like nausea and the stranger, which are like world renowned. And this book is, I think far and away superior to those. Nice. Well, I think I'm going to give it a, a 4.65. I really loved it. I'm, I'm, I'm turning into a major Simonon fan. I just. Simpanon really with loved... Gabe. Simpanon baby. Instead of a Simonon, I'm a Simon. Yes. You know, Oh, uh, it was Simon <laughs> Wee because of the French. Yes. <laughs> yeah, dude. I just, I, I don't know. He just, he, he blankets the, the spectrum of just like horrible humanity in such a, a great way. I, I wish he was a lot. I wish I could transport him in time now and he could write a story about like what's happening now. And it'd be fucking awesome. First forty-eight. It'd be a, it'd be an episode of the first forty-eight in Cleveland. It'd be great. <laughs> You'd just be pimping him out like Lot to just make like prestige TV or like murder television. <laughs> <laughs> he, he would be like, "What are you talking about? What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing?" Uh, yeah, or, yeah. Well, good, cloth. great, good book. I loved it. I yeah, yeah. Cool. I had a good time. I mean, I had a bad time, but in the best way possible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, I had a bad time. Mm-hmm. I had a great time. <laughs> and I hope, <laughs> listeners, that you, you, you did, did too. <laughs> That's the most important thing, is yeah. that the listeners had a good time. Yeah. You thought we Just forgot about o- you. Crack open this spine. Simonon deserves a crack. He does. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Multiple cracks. He needs a resurgence. Definitely, like fully unironically, I, I endorse what Matt said. This is, don't, don't, you know, whatever. Everyone's read The Stranger. And Sartre sucks. Sartre was a terrible fiction writer. Don't read it. Read this. 
Yes. That's that is and that is the final say of the spine crackers. Gavel pound. Doom doom. Bye guys. Thank you Bye. for listening. We love you. Bye. Bye. So many feelings pent up in here. Left alone I'm with the one I most fear. I'm sick and I'm tired of reasoning. Just want to break out. myself